The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. President's Day. Happy President's Day. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How do you celebrate President's Day typically? With tremendous fanfare, <laughs> fireworks, Ooh. the traditional President's Day meal. Yeah, which is... <laughs> you know. I know. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, pizza? <laughs> Yeah. Pizza party for the presidents. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, who didn't it's, love a pizza party as a kid? I feel like it's alliterative. So, I mean, that's pizza for the presidents. Yeah. 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 True. All right. It's settled. <laughs> there you go. Have pizza. So, um, today we are celebrating though, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Washington. The first. Yes. I'm excited. I don't get to talk about oh, Washington. Well, that reminds that much. me actually. Did one of the newer one of the newer biographies of Washington, right? You don't forget your first. Yeah. Is it the title of one of them? It's You Never Forget Your First. You never forget your first. That's it. It's such a good title. I, I you know that so this book came out in twenty twenty and I have used it in already like three or four classes just to give students a because it talks a lot about myths and give them an idea about histories and interpretation, not just a series of facts. Does it talk and about the stories we tell about Washington? It's really very much about the stories we tell, but it's the best title. And I always, my students never get as much of a kick out of it as I want them to. I like, I'm like, aren't I cool? I was signing a title or a book with a title uh, euphemisms. It's so cheeky. And they don't care. So hip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, yeah, today we were going to talk about Washington, some stuff that people know about Washington, the stories we tell about Washington, and then maybe some of the stuff that we don't tell that we thought we would tell today. So maybe we should start at the beginning. Yeah, let's do it. 
And I want to say quickly, I just want to yeah. give some um, credit. That book is written by Alexis Ko. You never forget your first. I should have mentioned that earlier. Sorry about that. I cut you off. But yeah, let's start at the beginning. So a young Washington yeah. is most famous for cutting down a cherry tree. Yes. And never telling a lie. Right. Because he didn't even lie about cutting down that cherry tree. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how, do you know how that story came about? I do, actually. I would love to hear it. Well, it's not that exciting, honestly. But it was, it was basically created by a man by the name of Parson Weems, Mm -hmm. who wrote maybe the very first biography on George Washington. And first of many, many, many. Yeah. But in an act of hero worship. But in fact, yeah, that never happened. There was never, never a cherry tree, never cut anything down, never was confronted by his father about the said event. So yeah, not true. All a lie. Yeah. Your favorite childhood story about Washington is in fact not true. It is funny how that story really, I mean, I'm certain that I was taught that story in elementary school. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to talk about one of my favorite topics of related to Washington? Well, so I think that one of the interesting things about, and I think this provides a a seg for you, one of the interesting things about Washington's childhood that we don't talk about as much is that he survived smallpox. Yeah. No joke. I mean, that was an incredibly deadly disease. Yeah. I mean, wiped out huge populations of people. And he, I mean, actually, when I was doing a bit of research, he survived a lot of diseases Mm -hmm. to reach his old age. And so, but smallpox probably being one of the most well-known deadliest of diseases. And smallpox could potentially answer the question that I was going to talk about. So in some cases, smallpox is known to cause infertility in men. And we know that Washington never had any biological children. So I want to talk about the potential that Washington was was sterile in adulthood and the way that biographers have have kind of tried to not talk about uh, it. <laughs> like, avert that attention away from him, which I just think is super interesting. So, okay, I'm going to give you a little background. As I just said, Washington had no biological children. But when he was married to Martha Curtis, also known as Martha Washington, on January 6, 1759, Martha was 27 and he was 26. So, very good biological reproductive years, okay? For the both of them. At the time of their marriage, Martha already had two children. She actually had had four pregnancies already, actually, but two of her children died before the age of five. And then the two surviving children was four-year-old, four-year-old son, John, but also known as Jackie. Mostly people called him Jackie. And then Patsy was Martha's daughter, who was two at the time of their marriage. Just as a side note, Washington apparently really, you know, treated these children like his own. He was devastated. Patsy died at the age of 17. She had um epilepsy and died during an epileptic seizure, which is very sad. And apparently he was Gosh. quite devastated. Um, additionally, apparently the fact that he was 
had no biological children actually helped his political career, which I know you know about this. But because at the time of early America, right, Americans were pretty weary of monarchies. And so the fact that the first president didn't have biological children made people a bit more confident that he would not turn the presidency into a monarchy and pass it down to his children. And so it actually helped his political career as the first president of the U.S. And so apparently there's not a lot of evidence that he was really bothered by the fact that he didn't have biological children. It It's not really discussed much in the sources, but one of the things that is highly discussed in biographies is linking uh, Washington to concepts of masculinity. And so some of the things that they use to link him to this. He's unusually tall person for this time period, right? So he has a serious presence in terms of his just like space he takes up. Six <laughs> three, I think. Is that right? I I'm gonna six believe two, you. six two, six three, something. So very like, tall. Yeah. Very tall. And he also had great ability. He was an excellent horse rider, equestrian. Is that the better word? Sure, you can go with that. <laughs> and apparently, a lot of historians talk about his excellent thighs, apparently, which is that Co. I'm stealing this from Co. Co has a whole chapter called The Thigh Men, in which she discusses the way that many biographers have commented on Washington's tremendous thighs. <laughs> so, and so, but she's, it's likely because he had, he was an excellent, you know, equestrian, right? It takes thick thighs will help with riding a horse. <laughs> <laughs> says, says you. <laughs> You're showing off all those years you experience you gained riding on horseback. Yes. How did you know? Clearly an expert equestrian speaking on the matter at the moment. But regardless of the thick thigh situation, but, but so there's just been this real effort to tie Washington to concepts of masculinity, which makes sense, right? You talk about his calves. No, I have not heard anything well, about that's the, calves. the part that would have actually been seen. You know, nobody could have seen his thighs that's necessarily. True. Like that's the stockings true. or whatever, you would have still had a sense of, wow, check out Washington's calves. <laughs> like, and you could have connected that to Calvary in so many clever, punny sort of ways. But so no, uh, the thighs, huh? The thighs, the thighs. Okay. All right. So, but anyone, anyways, so in an effort to kind of continue this masculinity approach, a lot of these biographers have been unwilling to question whether or not Washington was fertile or not fertile. And of course, we have really, we can't have true evidence of this, but it does seem a bit confusing that several of them have chosen to argue that Martha potentially was infertile. And just based on the fact that she had four pregnancies before or gave birth four times before marrying Washington, it seems unlikely that she was infertile or sterile. And so I just think it's an interesting thing to think about the fact that the ways that historians, you know, utilizing gender norms or even contemporary gender norms, right, to attach, to interpret Washington somewhat unnecessarily. Like, no one's questioning 
<laughs> Washington's masculinity. He clearly, I mean, he was the first president of the United States. He was a general, which you're going to talk about more. But it's just an interesting way of trying to understand how gender is constantly being used as a way to analyze something, even in unnecessary moments. Or And the fact that there's this refusal to challenge, potentially question his fertility is fascinating to me. Anyway, go ahead, please. That's what we have to do in the absence of data. There's some brilliant line from where Sherlock Holmes says that you you shouldn't hypothesize or speculate in the absence of data. He, Watson, I need data. I need data. But so often we don't have data. We have to speculate and rely on kind of contextual information that we may or may not have access to. So Martha and George don't have children of their own. Was he sterile? Was she sterile? You know, we don't know. Was there, was it recorded that maybe one of her last pregnancies or childbirths resulted in some sort of problem. Maybe we know, maybe we don't know. Maybe they didn't want kids. I don't know. I mean, there's so many things that it could be. But to your point, it, it's interesting that it becomes kind of a question of gender and what is expected of of men of a particular standing and what is expected of women of that particular standing. Yeah. You know, because exactly. when exactly. I was when I was a kid and hearing stories about Washington, honestly, I mean, I remember the fact that it was kind of mentioned and then you kept moving that they didn't have any kids together. And I don't ever, as a child, I don't ever remember being like, why? Hmm. I don't know. You know? <laughs> well, and I also, the way that I remember learning about it was the fact that he couldn't, it, it, in the regards to creating a monarchy. And so in that sense, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems pertinent, right, to where we were as a country in these very early years as a nation who had just broken away from a monarchy. And it reasserts his kind of only taking two terms, right? That's part of his legacy, right? That he really, in moments of potential power, which you're going to talk about, he actually doesn't take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But who maybe. Knows? We know he had smallpox. Maybe there were lingering effects. Yes. Yes. Do we want to talk about him as a soldier? Yeah, you have to talk about him as a soldier. All right. I mean, so he survives smallpox, right? Gets older, becomes some sort of land surveyor or something. Um, and then his lifelong dream was to actually be an officer in the British Army. That's what he wanted. You know, that was, again, the goal, the dream. And so he's in Virginia and he basically becomes in charge of a Virginia militia unit. Mm -hmm. They were actually, in terms of 18th century militias, his unit, they trained a lot and he seemed to be a pretty effective leader. And that is actually why he and a number of his soldiers are tasked to go west in Virginia into the Ohio River Valley and figure out what the French were doing there. <laughs> so just uh, to catch up people on a little bit of context, the in throughout the 18th century, there are a series of dynastic conflicts that are happening between England and France and also other countries. And what happens is they actually begin in Europe for European reasons typically around the succession of 
a particular monarch in a country. And then what would happen is these things would kind of boil over into the North American colonies. And there would be small numbers of regular or professionally trained European soldiers in the colonies, and they would fight these conflicts with the assistance of colonial militias and oftentimes Indian allies. So there are a series of these conflicts that happen throughout the 18th century. And, you know, England is trying to expand its efforts and interests from east to west. France is trying to expand its interests and efforts from, well, from a number of different directions. But this area of the Ohio River Valley becomes a contested area between the two of them. And so... About the middle of the 18th century, 1750s, 1754, Washington goes out, discovers that the French are building a fort. This becomes, this is called uh, Fort Duquesne. Um, he comes back, he reports that information, and the Virginia governor sends him back. And this time he takes a number of natives with him. A skirmish results between Washington and his militia and French soldiers. The native people that have are there have come for their own reasons. They're not really interested in the politics of Virginia or any of these dynastic conflicts that are driving the events for Washington and others. And so they wind up attacking some of the, the French soldiers. A small battle ensues. A superior French force actually comes out of Fort Duquesne, and Washington is forced to surrender. Once he surrenders, he signs capitulation, a capitulation agreement where he takes credit for the fact that the French soldiers had died. The crux of the issue was the fact that one of the French soldiers that the natives had killed had actually been an officer. So rather than just a regular soldier, he was an officer. And so Washington takes responsibility for that when he signs um, the surrender agreement. I joke around with my students about this a lot because there's some questions about why would he agree to all of this? And some historians have mentioned at different points that Perhaps it was because it was written in French and he couldn't read French. Oh, <laughs> okay. Either way, uh, what began as kind of a backwoods skirmish in the Ohio River Valley actually becomes a global conflict, arguably the First World War. Globally, it's called the Seven Years War. In the North American context, it's called the French and Indian War. It's the last of these series of dynastic conflicts that in which England and France are really kind of competing over North America. And it's different from all the others because it actually began on the North American continent and then flowed over places instead of happening the other way around. And so here is a man who his lifelong dream was to become no. a British officer. Things could not have possibly gone worse. I mean, here you are, <laughs> the head of some colonial militia, and you've you've started a world war. Oh, my God. I always tell my students, though, that they should take heart. Right. This is an amazing lesson for all of us. You can screw up in your youth and one day you, too, can become president of the United <laughs> States of America. That's so good. I love that so much. Maybe don't start a world war. 
But, you know. There's hope for us all. There's hope for saying? us all. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. What about as the, as the Revolutionary War begins? Right. So Washington continues to serve. It's a million wonders that they let him, but they do. He continues to serve in the Virginia militia, working with British regulars throughout the course of the French and Indian War. And he is a one of the prominent, po- politically prominent colonial landowners that's really frustrated by the settlements that happen at the end of the French and Indian War. In 1763, the British basically re-promise mm-hmm. a, <laughs> a promise that they had already made to Native people during the course of the conflict to create a really hard boundary line that essentially corresponded with the Appalachian Mountains. And they promised that British colonists would not move west of this mountain range and that everything west would be, you know, native territory. People could be there on, you know, wouldn't have to worry about settlers at all. And Washington was really, and not just Washington, but a number of people like him were very frustrated by this because they had felt like they had fought for access to that land. This is, that's just one kind of component to all of the things that lead to revolution. I don't think this podcast is about all the causes of America's war for independence. So I don't necessarily want to get bogged down into that. But when it becomes apparent that you know, you have your, you have the conflicts that begin in 1775, you have the meeting of Continental Congress, and it becomes evident to people that the United States was going to have to put together some sort of military force to go against the British regular force that existed in the colonies. Washington becomes an obvious choice because here's somebody who actually had military experience. And the other you know, funny anecdote is that he was the only one that showed up in uniform. <laughs> they say dress for the job you want, right? Right. Don't, that's right. <laughs> dress for the job you want, not the job you have. So he didn't arrive in Philadelphia dressed like a planner. No, 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 no. He came dressed like a soldier and not just dressed like a soldier, dressed like an officer. Dressed like a man in charge. And it's so funny because people are like, well, you know, we think we think you should do it. You know, and it's like me who me. Oh, I just never imagined that you would have chosen me. Little old me. And so I think in some ways, one of these. I mean, and who could, I don't know for sure, but he wanted to be a a British officer his whole life and he saw an opportunity to be a continental officer instead and, and took it. I mean, his military career throughout America's War for Independence demonstrates his commitment to the cause, but the early days of the situation were interesting. A lot of running. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just take a minute and reflect on the fact that showing up in that uniform, it's hilarious to think about. It's how that played out. But I mean, all of those people that gathered were, you know, either committing or on the verge of committing treason. Yeah, that's a great point. That's an excellent point and a different way of framing it. Yeah. So it definitely took some intestinal fortitude. Yes, you're what? That was a great, great uh, phrase. Excellent phrasing. Thank you. Um, but to your point, Washington 
doesn't become this fantastic general because of his tremendous success on the battlefield. He doesn't really have a lot of success on the battlefield. That's not that is not his strategy for success. His strategy for success throughout the entire war was actually to just avoid battle. conflict. Yeah. yeah, avoid battle. Yeah. I mean, and to his credit, he recognized that he didn't have he didn't have the tools. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense that he would avoid it if he knew that they didn't have the equipment to. Yeah, they didn't have the equipment. His men didn't have the training. I mean, there were so many things. And so basically he found success by just keeping his army in the field. The British kept trying to force him into decisive action. If we can Mm -hmm. beat Washington on the field of battle, then we can essentially win the war. And it's like that old adage about winning the battle but losing the war. I mean, that's essentially what happened to the British in the war for independence. As morale, though, and everything wanes, men are frustrated. They're kind of coming up on the end of their enlistment terms. Yeah. And so Washington knows that he needs to boost morale politically. People are kind of beginning to question the effort. So he needs to do something to change the morale, not only of his soldiers, but of of colonists more broadly. And that's where we get that really famous image of Washington crossing the Delaware. Can I tell you a, a, a little personal story about that place? What place? The where Delaware people, River? Yeah. So... Trenton and Princeton. In college, I took a Revolutionary War class in which we got to travel to Philadelphia to go to some of the places in which we were learning about. Super cool, right? Thanks, Dr. Elliot. On our way to Philly, because I was in school in New York, we stopped at the location of which Washington crossed the Delaware. New Jersey. I feel, yes, we were in Jersey. I feel bad for this public historian who is trying to do their job. So, so we're at the location and I remember this public historian asked the class, you know, set up the class saying all of these things that was, were going wrong, all kind of just speaking to, you know, some of the things you just spoke of. The fact that, you know, the, the colonial army was not equipped to win and asked us as a class, you know, who among you would actually join? It seems kind of silly, right? Based on looking at these statistics. And (laughs) a good friend of mine and I, who probably cared more about the history than most of the people in the class. No, I can't imagine. No, I know. We're the only two to be like, I would join, right? We would join because, and then we shamed all of them the other students for not being patriotic. (laughs) We were such jerks, but it was super fun. And I do, I think back on that now because it, I mean, it was a really a rhetorical question in which I did not treat it as such. And I also use hindsight to answer, but it was pretty fun. It was such a fun trip. Anyway, good memories. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> harassing public historians. Sorry. I'm sorry to that person. I don't know your name, but I am sorry. 
Well, public opinion had began to turn against Washington before this. Um, So not only were people kind of coming up on the end of their enlistments, there was a threat that, you know, the whole army could essentially demobilize. But again, public opinion was turning against him as well because he hadn't had any, any success to speak of. He'd basically just been retreating since he got involved. And so... Um, this happens in 17 Christmas, Christmas 1776. And basically part of Washington's army crosses the river. They attack a group of Hessians that were asleep. They'd been up partying on account of it being Christmas. Um, and so Washington attacks it at dawn or whatever. But the problem was he was trying to coordinate his entire army crossing the river, but conditions were bad. And so the entire army wasn't able to make it. So while he was able to defeat the Hessians, he couldn't get everybody else over there to actually hold the town. And so he had this victory in terms of the battle itself, but then he was forced to retreat. And even though it didn't kind of result in any sort of major, in terms of strategic geography gain or whatever, the morale boost that it gave was tremendous. And so it really kind of, not only did it boost the morale of his men, kept them enlisted, he got more enlistments as a result of that. And then there wasn't really any serious conversations about replacing him for the remainder of the conflict. And that was kind of became his strategy for success, avoiding major battle and kind of, you know, if he could find opportunistic moments, um, he would take them. Great. It makes sense. Shall we take a, uh, a uh, very hard turn? (laughs) To talk about another, a different, a very different myth around Washington. Sure. I, I can't think of a, a good segue with this. Do you think you can? I was going to think about that. So at the end of the war, he gives a really famous speech where there were a number of officers that were essentially, they hadn't been paid and they were, once the war ended, they realized that they would lose their leverage in terms of getting, like, as long as there was a war going on, the colonies, states, whatever, needed their army, right? But once the war was over, they no longer needed the army. So then the likelihood that they would get all this back pay was not so great. So they had kind of planned to hold the government hostage to make sure that they got paid. And Washington comes out essentially to convince them that this was a bad idea. Yes, you've sacrificed, but don't sully this this sacrifice. And he real famously gets out his glasses to demonstrate how the war has strained his eyes. And so showing everyone that he had sacrificed too. And because he was this male idol, Right. With tremendous thighs, as we've learned from you, that Thank this you. super masculine man who was willing to demonstrate such sacrifice, it, it humbled people and it basically ended what became known as the Newburgh conspiracy. But Justina, yes. when he gave that speech, Uh-oh. did he deliver it through wooden teeth? <laughs> ah, that was so good. No, he did not. To answer your question. Actually, this is such an interesting story. That was such a good segue. I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you did it. That was so good. Okay. So let's talk about the wooden teeth. No such thing. Did as that me. come from the cherry tree? So 
<laughs> the wooden teeth. That's why he was chopping it down. He knew he was going to have bad teeth. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to create a new myth. Okay. So there's no such thing as wooden teeth. W- Imagine having wood in your mouth. What does wood do when it gets wet? Decompose. Yeah, Can it decompose? And it would cause horrific breath. And so we have really no history of wooden teeth. But let me tell you about Washington's teeth. Yes, please. They were his. Some. So historically had terrible teeth. Okay. Mm-hmm. He spent lots of money on dentists, toothbrushes, medication, and cleaning solutions during his life. By the age of 24, he had paid a Dr. Watson five shillings to pull one of his teeth. And by the age of 57, as he became our nation's first president, he only had one of his own teeth left. <laughs> That's it. One. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm picturing Washington as, you know, <laughs> old man from the mountain, you know? It's a completely I, different image of him if you think I know. him all gummy. With, no, with his dentures out? Okay. I know. It's it's a little shocking, actually, to think about. And I have maybe this- that's why they didn't have any kids. He had terrible teeth, terrible breath. Martha never wanted to kiss him. And this is why they didn't have any kids. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, <laughs> anyway, I think uh, I think it might be a bit of a presentist perspective on your uh, your ideas around teeth. And maybe this is why Americans are like obsessed with having straight this because of Washington. <laughs> okay. So he invested in dentures for much of his life. And you can tell that he had different dentures throughout his life because from his, the paintings, because you'll see like his jaw looks different from different paintings. And if we look at the painting that's on the dollar bill, which was painted by Gilbert Stewart, you can see that that is a particularly awkward jawline. So that denture did not fit him that well should we give time for everybody to get out a dollar bill you know what i went to go look for a dollar bill today and i have none (laughs) (laughs) i live with only cards in my wallet so yeah Mm. you should go i'm gonna seek out a dollar bill to look at this again okay so dentures were made up of an assortment of different things oftentimes they used chunks of ivory from hippopotamuses walruses and elephants and they would sculpt them down to kind of look like teeth and they would affix them to the dentures using a brass screw um they would often fill in gaps in these dentures with less exotic animals teeth like cows and horses and i know this is mind-blowing and also a little like if your tummy there's a little bit of like i don't know if you're ill from teeth things Sorry, ahead of time. Okay, they also used human teeth. For instance, Washington would sometimes, if his teeth were pulled out, he would save them. And I read this like great thing that he wrote in a letter to someone like, hey, I know I left my teeth somewhere. What? <laughs> Wait, maybe I can find the actual line because it was so funny. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, this is a line. Washington, this is actually from Coe's book. In the preface, it says Washington kept some of his dead teeth at Mount Vernon. He hopes they might be reused and hopes that they might be reused as dentures. And this is a quote. I am positive I left them there or in the secret drawer or in the locker of the same desk. (laughs) You would think you would remember where you left your teeth, but no. Okay, so I will say this. I mean, about- I'm more curious about the need to reference where they might be. I mean, like, is anybody like- trying to find his dead teeth? 
Well, let me tell you why. Okay. So sometimes they would use the teeth to then add to the dentures, like your own teeth. If they pulled them, they might actually add them to the dentures. But then why would you need them pulled? Well, let me let me tell you, because he was wrong. They th- shouldn't have used his teeth because one of Washington's dentists, his name was Greenwood, called his teeth, and this is a quote, very black, occasioned either by your soaking them in port or drinking it. <laughs> they were so black that this dentist was like what'd you do just soak them in port i love it that drinking it was the second option also very cat drinking it was the second option i know you let washington the lush soaking his teeth in port yeah so where'd the other teeth come from slaves unfortunately so let me tell you a little bit about this so when washington turned 11 he inherited 10 slaves from his father he often paid his slaves for their teeth so he would actually get teeth from his enslaved people to be added to his dentures and the one of the things that i learned about when studying this is that he this was not uncommon so apparently greenwood his dentist um would offer money in the newspaper like he would put out an ad in the newspaper saying like i'll pay a certain amount of money for someone's teeth but what we know from one of Washington's personal ledgers um, that he offered six pounds and two shillings for at least nine teeth. Uh, this was two thirds less than what Greenwood was offering at the same time. So he was offering his own slaves money for their teeth, but at a far less than market value. Fascinating, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, interesting because, you know, the idea around dentures is, you know, ancient or not ancient, but, you know, 18th century dentures is fascinating. But also it really shows, I don't know, it really shows the dehumanization of enslaved people, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, also it shows that their willingness to give up their own teeth for money shows how much they needed the money, right? Or that they might be saving this money to pay for their freedom, right? And so I think this is a, I mean, it's, you know, one little fact, but it shows a complex hierarchy in terms of race and class. And so I thought we could talk a little bit about Washington as a slave owner as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is a discussion around, did he free his slaves, right? I think that's something that's often discussed. So I want to give you some specifics around that. So in 1799, which is the same year that Washington died, he wrote a new will. And this will shows that he was one of the richest men in America, but he was, quote unquote, I'm using a term that from Coe's book as well, cash poor, right? Much of his wealth was in his properties. And he had properties not just in Virginia, he had properties in several states. Um, and he often discussed actually wanting to free his slaves. And he somewhat believed in uh, the idea of around gradual emancipation. So I wanted to back up really quick. So there is a moment in early America that I think isn't discussed or isn't maybe well known that there was this kind of possibility. There is a moment in early America where I think some believe that slavery was going to die out in the U.S. Um, this is pre the cotton gin, Eli Whitney, as uh, invention, which really made cotton manufacturing much more, much easier, which then led to kind of the boom of cotton in the deep South, which then leads to the tremendous growth of slavery throughout the Deep South. But before that, there was this kind of discussion about what is going to happen with slavery. And many hoped 
and including Washington, that they would do something like gradual emancipation, which is what many of the northern states did. So states like New York, they put in a place when they ended slavery, they did something called gradual emancipation, which was a law that would say by such and such date, you have to free your slaves. So it wasn't as soon as the law hit emancipate, you know, slaves were emancipated. It was over a course of time. And so Washington did want something like this to happen. And he he discussed potentially wanting to free his slaves during his life, but he never freed any of his slaves actually during his life. But in this will that he wrote in 1799, he did say that he would free, and I have the number, 123 slaves after his death and then also after Martha's death. So the idea that Basically, that they would only be freed after Martha didn't need them anymore. And part of the discussion around this, and I I would be curious your thoughts on this, because I wasn't aware of this. So one of the reasons that he argued against freeing slaves during his lifetime was the fate of his slaves' families. So many of his enslaved people had married the Curtis's slaves, which is Martha's former husband. So she came into the family also with many slaves. And the slaves that were... The Curtises were going to Martha's heirs, so they were not Washington slaves, right? And many of them had married, so Washington's enslaved people had married the Curtises' enslaved people. And I want to say really quick, I think it's a little confusing to say married because their marriages were not legally bound. Enslaved people were not technically, they did not have technical legal marriages. But this was this idea that if they freed them, the Curtises had no intentions of freeing their slaves. And so he figured something around, well, if I free my slaves and they don't, their families are going to be split up. I don't know. It feels a little bit, I have never heard of anyone else using this as justification to not free slaves. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you heard anything about that before? Mm-mm, I've never heard anything about that before. I don't know. But I mean, to your earlier point, I think you know that's why the Constitution set a date that to stop the imported, continued importation, because the yes. idea was that gradually, you know, there could be a change. Yes, pre the cotton gin, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because the cotton gin, cotton wasn't really grown in the United States except in coastal regions because it was long staple cotton. But long staple cotton wasn't very profitable to grow and it had to grow in these very specific geographical regions. And as you said, when the patent, when we get the patent on the cotton gin, short staple cotton can, could now be cultivated and it became extremely profitable and short staple cotton grows everywhere. And so that's when you really get this expansion of, of cotton. It's fascinating to me to think about because we have so many, so many stereotypes and so many kind of historical images and things that we associate with the South and specifically around plantation economies and enslavement practices and all all of it being about cotton but really cotton cotton is only king for 50 years yeah it's extremely short time but it becomes like the it becomes what people think of when -hmm. they think of american slavery yeah Mm -hmm. i agree that antebellum period is really the only time in which you're seeing that kind of plantation in america but it becomes you know how people understand antebellum south period yeah it becomes the model in everyone's mind yeah and so it's really yeah to your point it's really the um internal slave trade that then expands and we get the 
the large increase in the enslaved population. And that's all because of of the internal slave trade, because the importation isn't as high anymore. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me because families were broken up all the time because people were selling. Yeah. And I don't know what difference it would have made. They may have stayed free. Right. They may have stayed in the area anyway, in order. Anyway, it's an interesting justification. But regardless, he decides I'm not going to have to worry about that in death. So I'm going to free them in my will following Martha's passing. But I want to also add that he added provisions to this, and I wanted to list some of them. He said that his slaves would be comfortably clothed and fed. His younger slaves uh, would be bound as servants till the age of 25, but they would be taught to read and write and a trade, which is significant because uh, we know that enslaved people are not are, are, are not allowed to be taught to read and write, but that comes after the Nat Turner Rebellion, which is in 1831. Great. Older and sick slaves, sick slaves, excuse me, would be provided um, care after their emancipation, um, which I think is significant because there's this really interesting book about a like uh, women, enslaved women. But one of the things that I learned about it or learned from it was about this idea that sometimes older slaves would be made free because they couldn't actually would be given their freedom because they couldn't actually perform a lot of work in their older age. But they were, if they were enslaved, they would have to be fed and given a place to live. And so the cruelty of freeing someone in their old age when they don't have the capability to do that is just kind of horrifying. Um, and so he's ensuring that even if they are emancipated, that they older slaves and sick slaves would still be given uh, provided care. So this is significant. I think this treatment of enslaved people in the 1790s is significant. And he did choose to free one enslaved person in this well. So even before Martha's death, um, immediately William Lee, who was one of who Washington believed to be an exceptional person, he chose to free him immediately. Um, and he did say that he would have freed him sooner but he thought Lee was better off in his own care, which I think is important because it speaks to the idea around white supremacy and slavery, right? This idea, there was this justification used that... Yeah, paternalism. Yes, exactly. And so that's a very common idea in this time period. So the decision to manumit his slaves and his belief in gradual emancipation was significant. But he wasn't alone in this. He's not the only person who was thinking this way in early America. So I just wanted to tell you about a couple other people. The first, I'm sure you're going to know, Benjamin Franklin freed his slaves during his lifetime. And in 1790, he petitioned Congress to abolish slavery. So he returns from France, and he's really decided to be essentially anti-slavery. Also, a prominent Virginian, Robert Carter III, manumitted over 450 slaves during his lifetime. Like Washington, Carter hoped that a gradual emancipation law would be put in place, but when one did not pass and it became clear it was not going to pass, he just started freeing his slaves in 1791. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how Washington did have this pretty progressive understanding of ending slavery in the U.S., but he wasn't 
the only person in America who was thinking in this way or the only Virginian for for that matter. Right. Because we know Franklin's much more associated with Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. So which is a Quaker state, um, which had, you know, much more progressive ideas about ending slavery. But other Virginians in same kind of status. Obviously, no one's in Washington status. (laughs) He's in a status all to himself. But someone who was a significant slave owner, you know, having 450 slaves to free during his lifetime was doing that during his lifetime. So I think that's a really interesting component of this legacy. Yeah, I think so. And I think speaking of Washington's legacy, because I know we've kind of poked fun at him a little bit throughout. Mm-hmm. But that's really kind of the point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if we can't, why are we doing this? <laughs> I don't know. It's been a long day. I needed to laugh. But I do think, you know, all kind of joking aside, and even maybe kind of setting aside some of these other complicated aspects of his legacy that you just got done talking about, I think one of the things that, you know, we really do have to give Washington credit for is the fact that at least in two different situations, he had a tremendous amount of power and he could have become incredibly abusive with the level of political power that he had. And he chose not to. So the first one around the Newburgh conspiracy, he really was, I mean, there were a tremendous number of officers that were extremely disgruntled. And Washington really was this larger than life figure and they respected him. And had he decided to do things a different way, I mean, he really could have become some sort of military dictator, kind of like a maybe not a dictator, but if we're thinking kind of contemporaries like a Frederick the Great, you know, a great kind of leader that's also this great military person. But he chooses not to do that. Right. Instead, he he goes home, essentially. And then the biggest moment is around his presidency. Not only does he go home after two terms as president, but even before it's kind of decided exactly what the position will be. You know, Hamilton and some others had really wanted him. Wanted Hamilton? Had really wanted him to kind of take on. More. Hamilton loved Washington. Had <laughs> wanted him to take on more of this kind of monarch sort of status and And he refused to do it. Incredibly popular. He could have been, I mean, he could have been FDR, right? And just stayed president until he died. But he didn't. He decided to, to, you know, do the two terms and then retire from public life. And I haven't completely psychoanalyzed that, but I do think it, you know, it speaks to his his character and I guess what his kind of morals and values were as well. Yeah, he even contributed to what the president would be called. So I was reading a little bit and it said that Vice President John Adams wanted to kind of use a more grand title. So some of the suggested titles were his elected majesty, his mightiness, or even his highness, the president of the United States of America. His thighness. <laughs> now, that is something I can get on board with. <laughs> I just planted that. And I didn't even think about it. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> Anyway, but he was the one who believed in the simple title that has been adopted, the president of the United States. (laughs) Mr. President. Yes. So I think that that speaks to that idea, right? He. It makes me also think that he 
really did believe in the cause, right? Which is, it is amazing when someone doesn't get drunk with power. And like mm-hmm. you said, he could have gotten really drunk with power. Yeah, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Ooh, very nice. Yes. Okay, so I had one last thought. So as you can tell, I've been really enjoying this co-book, Alexis Co's You Never Forget Your First. And one of the things that she talks about the very beginning. Um, and I said this, the book came out in 2020. So she, when she was writing the book, she started to look for, you know, of course, she's doing her historiography, right? And she's reading all the other biographies. Through that research, she had, she realized that no woman had written an adult biography of Washington in more than 40 years and no woman historian in much, much longer. And this really speaks to this idea, right? We're talking about the stories we tell, but it's also about, you know, who writes the stories we tell. Um, and I thought it was significant. She mentions, you know, in 1997, Annette Gordon-Reed published Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, which really shook up kind of the ways historic histories around presidents or biographies of founding fathers are created, right? Because her interpretation was a completely new interpretation of Jefferson, who had been interpreted, dare I say, thousands of times, right, before. And I think because Annette Gordon-Reed came to that research from a different perspective, she was able to create, you know, new interpretations. But I also think, and Co talks about this, that when she told people, I'm writing a biography of Washington, people said, oh, you mean Martha? Or, oh, you, you're talking about his social life? And it's this idea that women write women's history, people of color write people of color's history. And that's not, does not necessarily have to be true. And I found it really inspiring. Not that I fall, you know, strictly into that idea. I write women's history and I am a woman. But I did find that sentiment really inspiring. And I thought I'd share it with you. Very good. So not just the stories we tell, but who tells the stories. Yeah, so good. good. And your thighness is going to be my favorite thing. (laughs) I might just have to text you that at least once a week. (laughs) Well, um, I'm going to let you go now so that you can go get your pizza in honor of President's Day. But thank you so much for taking time to speak with me about our nations first. It's always a pleasure. Happy President's Day, everyone. Happy President's Day. Yay! Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.